Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us inside, inside the, the morgue. morgue. Welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. And this week, we're analyzing and debunking possibly the best-known forensics duo out there, Rizzoli and Isles. We'll be dissecting Season 7, Episode 4, titled Postmortem. The plot follows Boston Homicide Police Detective Jane Rizzoli and Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Maura Isles, combining their experiences and strikingly different personalities to solve cases. This episode starts off with a woman getting a parking ticket And when the officer turns around, he sees a postal service worker dead in the front seat of a car. So, Alice, I've talked to you about this, but my life goal is to come across and find a dead body. (laughs) And sometimes it infuriates me that in these shows, like, TV world makes it seem that on every other corner, just just some random passerby finds a body. And in reality, it's definitely not like that. You don't just stumble on them. (laughs) My life goal is to play a dead body in a TV show. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But especially this past week at work, it's been so slow. It's just with the amount of cases. Sometimes we'll go a couple of days without having a case. It has been slow, yeah. But I just wanted to put that out there, that I just really want to find a dead body. I feel like a lot of people who are into true crime say that. Like, other people who, definitely people who are listening to us will probably understand, but I feel like if we just said that... Same with, like, our other our coworkers. Our other coworkers, for sure. They're, they're part of our, our circle, but if we say that to other people, they probably won't get it. <laughs> but I get it. I get what you mean. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're not hoping someone dies, but... No, no, I'm never going to hope right. that somebody dies. It's so... Like, I'm not hoping for death, but I just want to be the person to find it. It's so hard to explain to people, like, no, 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 I don't want anyone to die, but... <laughs> <laughs> but if they did, I want to be the person to find you. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Resilient Isles gets called out to the scene. So, red flag, we've talked about this in past episodes, but typically... Unless it's probably, like, a huge press case, the forensic pathologist is not the one to go to a scene. The scene is for detectives, medical legal death investigators, and crime scene techs. So Rizzoli examines the mailman in the car and sees a 9mm in the front seat. It appears that the man shot himself in the mouth and the bullet is lodged in the posterior skull, aka the back of the skull, at an angle consistent with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. So based on the lividity, the time of death is between 6 and 8 hours. So lividity, or liver mortis, is how the blood settles in the body after death. It creates a purple-slash-reddish pattern, and that can help indicate the position that the decedent was found in when they died. So this is a green flag. Lividity takes place between 30 minutes to 4 hours after death, and after 6 to 8 hours, lividity becomes totally fixed, meaning that if the body is moved after that time period, the pattern of lividity will not change to the new body position, so you can definitely tell if the body had been moved previously. But this is an appropriate range that she gave, because that's what our death investigators probably would have done too. And there is no suicide note in the car, but the man lives a few blocks over according to his license, so maybe there's a note at the home. 
Isles sees a chip in the victim's left bicuspid tooth in order to determine if this chip is pre-existing mm-hmm. or from the gunshot. She wants to compare dental records, and she says that's the best way to rule that out. Another green flag, although we don't normally do this on suicide cases since dental comparisons are mostly done for unidentified bodies, this is still an accurate way to determine if a dental artifact or a tooth chip was pre-existing or not. Rizzoli looks through the man's wallet and sees a family photo with his wife and two kids, so they're hoping this is not a suicide for the wife's sake. They go to the victim's residence and discover that ten months ago, Jack, the mailman, he filed for divorce and that she and the kids had moved across town. As Rizzoli approaches the front door, she sees that it's open, so if the wife doesn't live there anymore, who left the door open? There's a noise coming from the kitchen, and they find a U.S. Postal Inspector in the house. Her name is CJ, and she's looking for evidence in the house, just like Rizzoli. She investigates an illegal operation in one of the postal facilities, and Jack was supposed to meet her last night, but he didn't show. A month ago, a janitor in one of the post offices saw Jack stealing packages, and he confronted Jack. Jack threatened his life, and the janitor left town, but then two days later, the janitor turned up dead. But Jack has an alibi for that day. So when Jack heard that the janitor was murdered, he got scared, and CJ offered safety in exchange for proof of what was in the packages. However, we know that Jack died now, and the postal inspector thinks it was a murder. But everything about Jack's life points to suicide. Based on his credit cards and bank statements, he was in serious debt and his car was about to get repossessed. The air quote murdered janitor, he had died in a slip and fall accident while visiting his sister in New York, and according to the New York ME, it wasn't even an open case. So, the difference between an open case and a closed case is if the cause or manner of death is still pending further investigation. It also depends on if the final autopsy report is submitted in order for the case to be closed. But if the case, like the case in their episode, was determined to be an accident, it could still be open, but not being actively worked on since the manner of death was already determined. So CJ was told to leave the case alone weeks ago, but she's a loose cannon with anger management issues. At the morgue, Isles received the dental records from the victim. She goes over his medical chart. He had a high cholesterol, allergies to sulfa, walnuts, and peanuts, but he was otherwise a healthy 46-year-old male. According to the dental records, his last dentist visit was two months ago, and that shows no chip in his tooth. This is not conclusive, but there is a finding of a hematoma on the roof of the victim's mouth, which would take a lot of force to cause. So, for reference, a hematoma is a pool of mostly clotted blood that forms in tissues or organs or other body spaces. So, Isles then shows Rizzoli the bullet. And we're going to give a red flag here because she is holding the bullet with a metal hemostat, or it's, it's like a metal clamp. And you would never use a metal instrument on bullets because it could create what we call an artifact, which is a type of marking on the bullet, which may interfere with the investigation. Now, I know many bullets are jacketed with copper or other metals, and that makes them resistant to certain damages. And it would take a lot of effort for someone to intentionally damage the bullet enough to cause interference in the investigation. But it's just generally good practice to not use any metal instruments on bullets or bullet fragments. This bullet marking has rub marks like it came out of a silencer. One last finding during the autopsy is bruising on the upper arms and chest, suggesting that the victim was restrained. A seatbelt as the restraint would be consistent with the width of the contusions, but the direction of the bruising suggests that he was immobilized from behind and the gun was shoved in his mouth, leading them to now believe that he was murdered. CJ seems to have been suspended from her job, and Rizzoli goes to her and asks if she now has time to work on the case with them. 
At the precinct, they question why the criminals would risk such value in the mail since things could potentially get lost. CJ abruptly says that things do not get lost in the mail. She's very defensive of the U.S. Postal Service. Rizzoli asks if the post office employees have changing rooms, lockers, or their own mailboxes. CJ was at one of the branches trying to investigate Jack, but she couldn't look through the lockers because she didn't have a warrant. But now that she's working with Rizzoli, they'll be able to get a search warrant. So in Pennsylvania, where we're from, search warrants are issued by judges. The warrant must identify the property and name or describe the person or place to be searched and must be executed within 10 days of the warrant being issued by a judge. So back in the show at the morgue, Isles comes in to say that the crime scene unit finished with the car and they found a missing piece of tooth and a hair. And she wants DNA run on the hair as fast as she can. The chief then comes in and asks if Isles can get an autopsy report from the New York Medical Examiner's Office. It's the autopsy report of the janitor that was supposedly was just an accident, but now they're looking into it to see if it was something more. They have reason to believe that someone stages murder to look like an accident. Rizzoli, with the search warrant, goes to the post office to look through Jack's locker. She finds a blue duffel bag, but nothing suspicious in it yet. Just some clothes, a water bottle, and a granola bar. But she'll take it to the lab to have it swept for DNA and trace. One of the employees at the post office asks why she's looking through the lockers because he thought Jack just committed suicide. Rosoli responds by saying that the police department investigates all suicides. Green flag here, because I know she technically works for the police department, but our deputy coroners also investigate all suicide deaths as well. Most suicide cases will get a full autopsy, and in cases where there isn't a suicide note, our investigators do everything they can when it comes to determining if the death was actually a suicide or not. Isles goes over the x-rays from the janitor's autopsy report from the New York Medical Examiner. And we'll kind of give a red flag here. I'm not really sure if it's a real red flag or not. But at least in Armour, we typically wouldn't x-ray this kind of case if we thought it was an accident or a fall. But we do x-ray all cases involving guns or bullets. So the post office worker, if he were our case, he would have gotten x-rayed to confirm that the bullet was not still inside his head. We also x-ray all unidentified bodies, as we've talked about in past episodes, too. So we'll x-ray a John or a Jane Doe for any metal implants that they might have inside of them, because all of those implants will have serial numbers that could be used in identification. In the past, we've also x-rayed on explosion victims for any shrapnel that can be collected and given to ATF for part of their investigation. But if this was a typical slip and fall case, we would not have x-rayed them like they did in the show. Isles shows Rizzoli the lateral image of the skull and cervical spine. And lateral just means like an image from the side. So the cervical spine is the spine in the neck and points to a tiny bone fragment in the cervical canal. It is chipped off at C2 in the cervical spine. The cervical spine has seven cervical vertebrae. C1 and C2 are the first two cervical vertebrae and form a pivotal joint called the atlantoaxial joint because C1 and C2 are also called the atlas and the axis, respectively. The only way this chip could have occurred would have been from the rotational break. So the janitor did not die from falling down the stairs. This man's neck was snapped, likely from behind, which is the same MO for their current victim. We looked this up because we were curious. Generally, it takes about 1,000 to 1,250 pounds of torque or force to break the neck manually. That is a lot of force. This amount of force could be achieved from a five to nine foot draw. That is a lot of force for one person to achieve. But how I'm picturing it, you have to have them in like a chokehold from behind so your arm is creating kind of like a T and you're pulling them to the side and dropping at the same time which full disclosure I am a black belt in taekwondo I was gonna let everybody know I do know how to do this I am first line of defense at work (laughs) first line of defense at the morgue gonna let everybody know that I do not mess with Jess 
She could kill me. So I, I do know how to do this, but even still, like, that is just a lot of force to yeah. just up and do on someone. It seems insane. So the lab is still processing the bag from the locker, but so far there are no other prints besides the victim's prints. But it is a little suspicious that a man being allergic to peanuts would have had a peanut butter granola bar in his bag. So this is a green flag for Rizzoli. Although she's not wearing the gloves, she does have them in her hands and she uses those to touch the granola bar rather than her bare hands so as to not contaminate any evidence by doing this and she doesn't leave her prints or her DNA behind while the item is still being processed. She flips the bar over and she sees a postal barcode on the label of the granola bar. Whatever or whoever this barcode was attached to is probably what killed Jack. The 65 bars represent USPS intelligent mail barcodes. It was introduced in 2013 to provide more information and the last nine numbers in the barcode represent the zip code plus four. And that information can get them to a specific postal delivery route. Since there would be way too many packages to search on a single route, they hope to find the package's origin from the code. The middle bars tell the sender's mailer ID. They get the ID and the origin is Southpaw Sporting Goods in Miami. But they see that the bar in the barcode may be forged since it's under-inked and it looks like it was printed off of an old-school printer. But from the tracking program at the post office, pictures are taken of every piece of mail at its origin point. So if Miami has pictures of this barcode, they can see exactly who was supposed to receive it. CJ makes a call to Miami since she has a few friends down there and she gets a photo sent over and it has the package's address of the person who was supposed to receive it. This address is a fake and they search how many other packages were sent to this address. At least a hundred or more packages were sent there and they find that undeliverable packages go to a dead letter bin in each post office and then usually ship to Atlanta. Rizzoli suspects that these letters were intercepted before they were rerouted and this was Jack's job. That way you can't trace the sender or receiver. The packages to the fake address always arrive on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and they need to go undercover to retrieve the latest package set to arrive today. The chief and Nina, who's the computer check at the office, go undercover, and they see the same employee who helped Rizzoli earlier with Jack's locker. He goes in for the package, and they go in for him. Iles gets the DNA report back from the hair they recovered from the car, and then Rizzoli comes in saying that they have their man upstairs in the interrogation room, but Iles says she's not so sure that they really do, considering that the DNA came back for that of a woman. In the interrogation room, they have the contents of the package laid out. There were 500 tabs of oxycodone inside the package. At $60 a tab, that's 300 grand per package. That's so much money. So I don't know if I really need to say this, but mailing drugs is a federal crime. If you didn't already know that, now you do. Don't do that. Do not mail drugs. We don't (laughs) endorse that. This podcast is against the mailing of drugs. Very anti-mailing drugs on this podcast. We're going to come down hard and fast on that. The postal employee is a good guy. He got trapped into doing this. He got into a car accident six years ago, messed up his back, and then got addicted to Oxy. When his prescription ran out, he found a dealer, and about a year ago, the dealer threatened to cut him off unless he started getting the packages delivered. He got Jack involved because he needed the help with the number of packages coming, and he knew that Jack needed the money. The package drop is tonight, and if he doesn't show, he's a dead man. CJ says that they can protect him, but they need the dealer's name. Her name is Rachel Hansen. Rizzoli and her team are in place for the drop, and they see the dealer. She takes the bag just like they anticipated, and Rizzoli goes in to arrest her, and as soon as she does that, everybody starts shooting. Rachel runs away. As she's running away, CJ then comes around a corner and punches her in the face. She goes down, and then the team 
does their thing. I wanted to ask was, I don't know if I just missed it, did we meet this Rachel Hansen earlier in the episode? No, I don't think so. She... she just, like, came out of the blue at the end. Damn, because I, I watch these shows and I'm always trying to guess who it is because it's usually someone you meet. Like, that's the formula of yeah, these yeah, type right. of shows. No, they faked us out with this one. Yes. Just pulling her out of the blue. Yes. But it threw me because usually the big bad guy at the end in these shows, there's like a formula to it. It's someone you've met before that you don't expect, but you kind of do if you watch enough of these shows. And so I was trying to guess who it was. And then there, he was like, her name's Rachel Hansen. And I was like, who the hell is Rachel? Who Hansen? is Rachel? Who is Rachel? I don't know who she is. Every show has the same M.O. I know, except for this. It threw me off. These shows do keep us on our toes. They do. They do. So, like always, these shows make us think of real-life events or crimes that we think inspired these storylines. And I don't know about you, but the post office storyline made me think back to the anthrax scare of 2001. So a man named Bob Stevens arrived at a Florida hospital in the early morning hours of October 2nd, 2001. The ER doctors thought the 62-year-old man might be suffering from meningitis. But when an infectious disease specialist looked at the spinal fluid under a microscope, he realized that this was not meningitis. Lab tests confirmed this, and on October 4th, Stevens was diagnosed with inhalation anthrax, a bacterial disease primarily found in livestock that the CDC recognized as a potential agent of bioterrorism. Over the next two months, Stevens and four other people would die after inhaling anthrax, and 17 others would be infected, either by inhaling anthrax or getting it on their skin. The lethal spores arrived via a series of letters mailed to locations in four states, including Florida, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Washington, D.C., spreading a new wave of panic across a nation already reeling from the terrorist attacks of 9-11 that had occurred just weeks earlier. Oh my god, yeah, that's I right. I forgot how close those events were. Yeah, I forgot how closely these two things happened. Oh my god, this is scary. I was only eight, but... I even, like, even at eight years old, I remember being, like, on edge. I personally don't remember this. I know. You're, you were so... <laughs> if I was eight, what were you, three? <laughs> Probably. That makes me really think about our age difference. I was just... I was eight, and I also grew up right outside of Queens, so 9-11. I mean, it was a big deal for everybody, but it was, like, I was close to it, and my dad used to work... My dad had just... Uh, left his job in Manhattan like the year before but he had like worked right there and I just remember being eight years old freaking out obviously everybody was freaking out but after anthrax was discovered at Stevens workplace and two more of his colleagues of his were found to have been exposed state authorities in Florida initially tried to calm the public down after insisting that there was no terror link the FBI launched an investigation and by early November they had found three of the letters containing anthrax spores including one sent to the offices of Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle in Washington DC the New York Post and NBC in New York City the public fear only intensified after law enforcement authorities determined that the first group of anthrax-laced letters, try saying that five times fast, oh my god, had been posted from mailboxes in New Jersey on September 18th, 2001, just a week after the 9-11 attacks. A second bunch of letters had been mailed on October 9th. In addition to anthrax powder, some of the letters also contained threatening notes using radical rhetoric. Concern about bioterrorism had ramped up in the years prior to the anthrax attack with increased awareness of and training in dealing with anthrax and other select agents or bacteria, fungi, or viruses known to be potential weapons. This increased focus helped officers respond more effectively to the attacks than they might have otherwise been able to. And in early 2002, President Bush announced he would be requesting 
$11 billion over the next two years to protect the nation from bioterrorism. Meanwhile, the FBI continued their investigation, focusing by mid-2002 on Dr. Stephen Hatfill, a scientist who had once worked in the U.S. Army's Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases at Fort Detrick, Maryland, which kept stock of anthrax. Identified as a, quote, person of interest in the attacks, Hatfill steadfastly maintained his innocence and was eventually cleared. FBI investigators then zeroed in on yet another scientist, Dr. Bruce E. Ivins, who also worked in the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute and had been trying to develop a more effective vaccine against anthrax. Placed under a 24-hour surveillance and banned from the labs where he had spent over 30 years, Ivins was hospitalized for depression and anxiety, and in July 2008 committed suicide by taking a lethal dose of acetaminophen, also known as Tylenol. In February 2010, the FBI closed its investigation into anthrax attacks after more than eight years issuing a 92-page report that concluded that Ivans carried out the attacks entirely on his own. But the results of the investigation were later called into question by the National Academy of Sciences, which issued a study in 2011 determining that while the scientific evidence supports the idea that Ivans might have been the perpetrator, it does not prove it conclusively. In the wake of that study, a 2014 report by the Governmental Accountability Office found that the scientific methods, including genetic data the FBI used to identify Ivans as the culprit, were flawed, casting further doubt on its conclusion. Prepared or not, the threat of another biological attack remains real. In late September 2018, letters were mailed to the Pentagon that reportedly contained ricin, a poison extracted from castor beans that has been used in previous bioterrorist attacks. If you want to read more, we got this information from a History.com article titled When Anthrax-Laced Letters Terrorized the Nation by Sarah Pruitt. We also wanted to touch on a much more recent case that is very similar to the story told in this episode of Resilient Isles. In 2014, Robert Elliott Shepard was a U.S. Postal Service mail carrier. In exchange for bribes, he would send five-pound packages of cocaine and marijuana to a man named Dexter Fraser, a local drug trafficker. In 2016, Fraser approached Shepard and asked about delivering additional packages. At that time, Shepard was on disability leave and therefore unable to receive or deliver these packages. So Shepard offered to recruit other mail carriers to deliver the drugs if Fraser agreed to pay him a fee, which he did agree to. Shepard recruited his two co-workers, Tony Harris and Clifton Lee, explaining that if they delivered these packages of drugs to Fraser, they would be paid. Harris and Lee agreed and each delivered three packages to Fraser, containing two kilograms of cocaine or 10 pounds of marijuana. Just this year, in August 2022, Robert Elliott Shepard pleaded guilty to drug trafficking charges after recruiting Harris and Lee into his drug scheme with Fraser. U.S. Attorney Ryan A. Buchanan stated that Shepard exploited his position as a mail carrier to traffic kilogram amounts of cocaine and marijuana. His official sentencing is to set place this upcoming November. As for the people involved in this crime, Frazier was sentenced in June of 2018 to nine years in prison, followed by 10 years of supervised release. He also is ordered to pay a restitution fee of $10,700. He pleaded guilty to the offense of attempting to distribute cocaine and marijuana on March 6, 2018. Lee was also sentenced in 2018 to three years and 10 months in prison and followed by three years of supervised release. He is also ordered to pay a restitution fee in the amount of $1,800. He pleaded guilty to the offenses of attempting to distribute cocaine and bribery of public officials on February 28th 2018, and Harris was sentenced in August 2018 
to three years and one month in prison, followed by four years of supervised release. He also has to pay a restitution fee in the amount of $1,450. He pleaded guilty to the offenses of attempting to distribute cocaine and marijuana and bribery of public officials on March 20, 2018. We got this information from a United States Attorney's Office, Northern District of Georgia, press release from August 5th, 2022. That's so recent. I don't know when this episode came out either. Yeah, I am so. not sure either, but, but I, I know think, it's not it like this a year. recent show and it's probably been off the yeah. air for a while. But don't people know that you're gonna eventually get caught and you have to do the time because you did the crime? I mean, if they listen to our podcast, they would know. We don't endorse mailing drugs. Mailing drugs is bad. Mailing drugs is illegal. Mailing hard drugs, don't do it. Don't mail drugs 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 and don't do drugs. (laughs) Don't don't do the drugs. These are life lessons to live by. (laughs) Don't mail it either. So with that important life lesson, that is the end of our episode. We tallied a total of four green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Rizzoli and Isles does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, family, and coworkers. We'd love to grow our platform here. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at InsideTheMorgPod or Twitter at InsideTheMorgue and DM us any show suggestions. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.